Thanks to Audible for supporting The Motley Fool and Industry Focused. Check out audible.com slash fool to get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. Again, that is audible.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I am your host, Vincent Chen, and it is Tuesday, February 14th. Fools, I have a really special show in store for you. Uh, Last week, I was able to spend some time chatting with David Gilboa, co-founder and co-CEO at Warby Parker, the fast-growing eyewear company that in a few short years has built an incredible brand, and the company has done that really by giving consumers more choices better prices, and overall, by challenging the status quo in an industry that has traditionally been dominated by just one company. Now, for any fools listening who are not familiar with Warby Parker, or even those who are currently wearing their glasses but have not heard this before, the story of how the company was founded is really special. Here's David on the inspiration behind Warby Parker in the earliest days of the company. I started Warby Parker along with uh, my three co-founders in February of 2010. Um, we were all classmates at business school. We'd met at Wharton and um, really started the, the company to solve our own problems. So um, I had uh, been working in consulting and finance uh, for a few years and then decided to go back uh, to, to school to get a graduate degree and took a few months off to travel and was backpacking around Southeast Asia. And I happened to lose um, my only pair of prescription glasses. They cost me $700. Um, I left them on a plane. And uh, the whole time I'd been backpacking, I didn't have a phone. Um, and so I got, got back to the U.S., kind of phoneless and, and glasslessless. And uh, the iPhone 3G had just come out. And I went to the Apple store and paid $200 for uh, this device that did kind of these magical things that people can um, uh, have imagined even a few years earlier. Um, and I paid $200 for that and couldn't understand why I had to pay so much more for a new pair of glasses. Right, the technology uh, behind uh, a pair of prescription glasses is 800 years old, um, and it just kind of didn't, didn't make sense to me. Um, and then uh, Andy, uh, one of uh, the other, uh, one of our other uh, co-founders, he'd been wondering why no one was effectively selling glasses online. Um, and uh, so we, we got together, started talking about this um, idea, and uh, Neil, um, one of the other founders, um, is also my co-CEO, um, uh, he had spent a few years working at Vision Spring, which is this great nonprofit um, where they're helping to address the 700 million people around the globe that need access to classes but don't have them, uh, primarily in the developing world. Um, and he'd been to factories um, in a few places around the world and knew that um, there was kind of nothing in the cost of goods or the manufacturing process that, um, that required these high prices. And as we started digging into it, realized that um, kind of one of the, uh, the the primary reason that uh, glasses were, were so expensive and that there had been very little innovation either on the, the product side or the distribution side was that there's this massive concentration of power in the industry. That concentration of power lies with Luxottica, which we covered in detail here on Industry Focus just a few weeks ago with the news that it would be merging with leading lens specialist Essilor in a $50 billion transaction. Between the leading brands Luxottica owns, the many more it licenses with, its huge retail store network, and its position as a major vision insurance provider, you quickly realize that any newcomer to this industry faces a daunting uphill battle. But that also seemed to spark David and his friends to tackle this challenge head on. I've been wearing glasses since I was 12 years old and um, had, had never heard of a company called Luxottica, and most consumers haven't, um, but they own brands like Ray-Ban, Oakley, Oliver Peoples, Persol, Arnett. They have the exclusive eyewear licenses for um, 
uh, most uh, major fashion houses, Chanel, uh, Versace, Dolce Gabbana, DKNY, Ralph Lauren, a bunch of others. They own Lens Crafters, Sunglass Hut, Target Optical, um, Sears Optical, uh, Pearl Vision, um, and then they also own IMED, uh, which is the second largest vision insurance plan uh, in, in the U.S. And they recently announced um, a merger with Essilor, the world's largest lens company, um, as well. And so, um, as a result of, um, kind of this concentration of power, there's really the illusion of choice um, in, in um, the, the industry where if you walk into a sunglass hut or a lens crafters, you might see 50 different brands of glasses, but uh, don't realize that um, they, most of, or all of those brands are owned by the same company that owns the store you're standing in, that owns the um, uh, insurance plan they're using to pay for those glasses, that um, will now likely own the lenses that are um, used to, to make um, uh, those glasses as well. And so um, uh, we thought that there was just kind of that that didn't make sense, and and that um, there was a way to um, really design the glasses that we loved um, and sell them um, direct to consumers for a fraction of, of the price. Um, and so that was really kind of the idea that um, uh, that eventually led to Warby Parker. And we were also, um, just as a founding team, really excited by the opportunity to, to build a for-profit business that um, had a positive impact um, on the world. Keep in mind that the team of co-founders was not built from the ground up to start a company like Warby Parker, but their experiences inside and outside business school still proved quite valuable, as did the paths forged by other forward-thinking companies. Our, our founding team, uh, there were four of us, and you know, on paper, um, probably didn't look like the, um, the team that was going to um, launch uh, the next e-commerce company or a fashion brand. Um, a couple of us had worked at uh, Bain & Company as consultants. Um, a couple had worked at investment banks or private equity firms. And then Neil had spent um, a few years at, in the nonprofit world. Um, but I think we were able to take, um, you know, a lot of what we had learned in those uh, few years in between um, undergrad and, and business school, and um, apply um, kind of um, frameworks or, or ways of thinking um, to what was really a, um, you know, a, a novel problem um, where there was kind of an industry dynamic that we had to understand. Um, and kind of coming from a you know, consulting uh, background, um, we were kind of all constantly thrown into new situations where we had to uh, quickly come up to speed on kind of um, who the players were in a certain industry, what the market dynamics looked like, where there were opportunities or, or um, threats. And so um, kind of that way of thinking was um, super helpful as we were putting together our initial business plan. And kind of once we started talking about the idea, um, it was basically all we could think about 24-7, all we wanted to, uh, to work on. Um, and so the four of us then basically chose classes um, at Wharton where we would get credit um, for uh, producing the business plan or, or continuing to, to make progress um, on, on this idea. And as, kind of we, kind of, um, as we learned more, um, again, using um, a lot of the, um, the, uh, the, the thinking and the, and the frameworks um, that we had learned in our previous careers um, in thinking about um, kind of working with different clients or management teams and how they might approach um, some of these situations. 
um, I think those uh, those skills that we learned early on were um, were really helpful. And then as we were um, kind of getting ready to launch and thinking about how do we finance the business, um, we initially bootstrapped it. Um, so the four of us took our life savings and um, and launched out of our apartments. We weren't paying ourselves a salary, didn't have many employees, didn't have a marketing budget, so we were really scrappy. Um, got a couple initial loans and um, our um, the, the skills that we had learned both in kind of consulting and finance came in quite handy as we were thinking about um, how to how to capitalize and, and finance the business over time. And, and on that note, uh, do you think when you were getting started, were there any companies in particular, other startups even, that you felt like you wanted to emulate or that you pulled some important lessons from? Yeah, I think there were um, you know a few companies that um, inspired us in, in different ways. Um, Zappos um, at the time was uh, independent. This was uh, before um, uh, Amazon had, had uh, purchased them, and uh, just thought um, Tony Shea's philosophy um, around company culture and uh, customer service uh, was really fascinating. And in particular, um, right, it allowed their company to scale and sell a product that. Um, didn't seem like a natural fit uh, for, for something that um, uh, you would purchase online, at, at least at the time. Um, another company that uh, was a bit more mature but uh, really inspired us in terms of their values and, and philosophy and, and ethos is Patagonia um, in that they had this great um, social mission, um, have had a lot of positive impact um, around sustainability and the environment. Um, but they really didn't lead with that as a marketing message. Um, they uh, really focused on creating and selling great products, and um, and on kind of the um, on the back end, um, focused on how they could um, leverage their organization to to have positive impact. And um, thought that was just a really interesting um, approach. Um, and then on um, kind of a more the brand and design side, uh, to bigger companies that we took a lot of um, you know, inspiration from are both Nike and Apple. Um, so Nike, in that um, it's right, become this um, mass global brand, um, yet they've um, figured out how to um, appeal to really niche uh, influencers and. and um, and stay cool, um, even as the, the brand has gotten much bigger and you still have uh, people sleeping on the sidewalk for 24 hours before um, their latest uh, limited edition Nike SBs are released um, all over the world. Um, yet it's become this, this um, hugely um, successful and ubiquitous brand as well. And then um, Apple just on the um, simplicity of design and really focus on, on um, user experience and customer experience. Um, so kind of I've tried to take a different aspects of, of companies that we had a lot of respect for and, and think about how we might incorporate them into our own model. If you visit the Warby Parker website, specifically their page on company culture, you'll actually see that their number one ground rule is to treat customers the way we'd like to be treated. So this is, of course, the golden rule, something that's very important to us here at The Motley Fool as well. That kind of got me wondering about what it might be like to start your own company, to have essentially a blank page where you get to define your culture and you get to really influence what an employee feels when they walk into work each day. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, there are surprises for us uh, every day, and that, that continues. Um, you know, we, we got a lot of advice early on that 
um, is a terrible idea to start a company with friends that we're going to end up hating each other. It's a terrible idea to start uh, to have four co-founders um, that, you know, just too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, and then when we, um, after we launched the business, after we graduated, um, got advice that it's a terrible idea to set up a co-CEO structure, that you really need hierarchy and kind of one decision maker. Um, but for us, we've, um, we've, we've made it work and, and um, I wouldn't do it um, any, any differently and just feel really fortunate that um, I was able to start a business with really close friends. We remain really close friends and um, kind of having those partners along, um, uh, along for the journey just makes the, the highs a bit higher and the lows a bit higher because um, every starting any type of business is, is a, a roller coaster. Um, and I think the way that we've been able to make that work is just be really thoughtful um, about uh, being honest, direct with each other, providing each other feedback, whether that's um, you know, positive feedback or constructive feedback, um, and recognizing that um, we're, we're in this together and we need to, to help each other, um, and then uh, thinking through how to infuse um, kind of that same culture of, of feedback into our organization, which is now over a thousand employees, and um, kind of how do we ensure that um, we can build in um, our best practices as, as the organization scales. And you know, um, just a, an example of, of how we thought about that, even in the early days, you know, before we had launched a website, before we had designed uh, any of our frames, just as we were talking about um, the, uh, the business model and, and starting to, to put the pieces in place. Even in those early days, the four of us founders, we would make time for 360 degree reviews um, where we'd go to kind of our favorite uh, local bar in Philadelphia, where we were based at the time, and uh, we'd just go around, one person would be in the hot seat and um, uh, could talk about kind of how they're feeling about things. We tried to separate kind of operational and tactical issues from uh, those of uh, kind of how we were working together as a team and what was going well, what wasn't. Um, and then yeah, the other uh, three uh, people would have an opportunity to, to provide uh, feedback to that person. And, um, you know, it could be um, something about, um, you know, just ways of communicating that um, set off um, certain triggers. So, um, you know, it, for example, if um, someone sent me a, you know, three-paragraph email about a piece of the business that um, I had said I would um, uh, I would own. Um, you know that could set off a, a trigger where it might I just might feel defensive in that situation, feel like they're trying to they don't trust that um, I'm taking ownership of this, um, and that would rather have them just grab me um, the next or or give me a call and talk through it um, when you know. Just providing that feedback, the person who wrote the email might have um, had the best intentions, and they just wanted to jot down their ideas and thought that email was kind of the most efficient way to uh, to get those thoughts across. And so, just uh, kind of having those types of conversations um, early on, um, I think, was super helpful, and and um, and kind of a, creating a culture of, of open and honest, direct feedback is something that um, we spend a, a lot of time thinking about. Um, yeah, how, how can we structure that in, in the most effective way possible um, as our company scales?
Before we move on and learn more about how Warby Parker operates, I want to thank Audible for supporting this podcast. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original shows, news, comedy, and more. If you've been enjoying this discussion with David and you like hearing the story of how some of your favorite companies came to be, audiobooks are the perfect way to dive in and learn more about iconic brands and the business leaders behind them. One of my favorite uh, personal business leaders is Richard Branson, who shares his own story and mindset and great titles like uh, Losing My Virginity, Screw Business as Usual, and many more, all of course available in Audible's extensive library. Whether you're commuting to work, doing chores around the house, working out at the gym, or shopping at the mall, audiobooks can be there with you at every step of the way. So if you want to listen to it, Audible has it. And for our Foolish Invet listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. Just go to audible.com slash fool and browse their huge selection of content, download a free title, and start listening. It's that easy. Again, just go to audible.com slash fool for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Industry Focus appreciates your support. So, about six, seven years after they launched, the company is now a unicorn, a coveted title reserved for startups and private companies that have achieved a valuation of $1 billion or more. Other famous unicorns include uh, Uber, Spotify, and Airbnb. But while the company has its roots in e-commerce, as many startups do, it has not shunned the in-person retail experience. There are now about 50 Warby Parker stores located across the United States and in Canada. Here's David on how they view this opportunity. We've always thought of ourselves as a brand first, and um, we really used e-commerce as a way to uh, to launch in a capital-efficient way and for us to um, give access to, to customers no matter where they were. Um, but it, it, and I think we surprised people when we started opening stores, but for us it was um, really just a nat- natural evolution of the business where um, we want to make things as, as easy and accessible um, to our customers as possible. And um, the, our view is that the world's not never going to be black and white. It's never going to be um, all bricks and mortar. It's never going to be all e-commerce. And so the best brands and retailers um, should give their, um, their customers options. And uh, that's what we're trying to do with our stores. And um, so our goal is to really open um, stores in um, in areas where we haven't enough of a concentration of customers to, to justify the, the economics. And um, the great thing about kind of starting off as an e-commerce company and being uh, vertically integrated is that we have direct access to our customers and direct access to customer data. So we know um, really where our customers live and we can use that um, to help inform where uh, we should be opening stores. And um, we still see very strong growth in our e-commerce business and expect that to continue and expect that e-commerce to continue to take share from bricks and mortar industry-wide. But right now, um, that split is about 95% uh, uh, bricks and mortar, 5% e-commerce across the industry. Now, our our split looks very different than that. Um, But if we want to offer the best experience to eyewear consumers, it makes sense for us to, uh, to continue to open stores. And so... Um, we're at about 50 stores now, and we'll be at about um, 75 by the end of the year. The company is pushing forward in other respects as well. Uh, vertical integration. This is a term commonly associated with the company. Uh, Warby Parker has enjoyed so much success, essentially dumping the middlemen that have been so common to the eyewear industry. You know, the Warby designs its frames in-house. They avoid licensing deals with fashion designers. The glasses are sold either direct from their own site or at their Warby Parker store locations. And the company even offers eye exams at about a dozen of its stores, removing the need for consumers to seek out separate medical providers. So this integration has really allowed the company to maintain 
maintain competitive pricing. Uh, their frames, the bulk of them, start at just $95. And other name brand offerings, frankly, can easily run to several uh, hundreds of dollars in terms of pricing. So now Warby's darping, dipping its toes into the production side as well, as it has recently opened a $50 million facility in New York, about an hour outside the city. Yeah, so we're really excited uh, to have opened our first optical lab. Um, it's uh, over a 30,000 square foot facility um, in New York, um, and um, it allows us to um, actually cut lenses, um, insert them into frames, um, and then uh, ship the final uh, product directly to our customers. Um, so, you know. Um, we've tried to focus on different uh, parts of, of our business and take control um, over um, many aspects of the business. And this is kind of our next step in, uh, in vertically integrating. And, um, and there are a few reasons for it. One is just be able to provide um, the highest quality product um, to our customers and having full control over that product instead of relying on third parties. Um, two is that we're really focused on um, faster turnarounds and delivering our, our product uh, to customers faster at once um, uh, once they place an order. And I think you're just seeing that um, customer expectations are increasing at a really rapid uh, clip, uh, primarily due to um, services like Amazon Prime and, and Uber, and um, and we want to make sure that uh, we have a supply chain that enables us to to scale and uh, continue to exceed customer expectations. Um, and then um, also just thinking about um, being in, you know, taking full control over um, our own destiny and not being um, reliant on um, any any particular supplier um, and uh, feeling like we can flex up and flex down um, according to our business needs. Um, and finally, just thinking about the economics of the business where um, there is an opportunity here for um, us to um, keep a little bit more of a margin for ourselves instead of uh, paying someone else um, for some of these services. And so um, we're excited to take this next step. And, um, and in the future, I think you'll uh, continue to see us um, take more control um, over uh, core aspects of our business. Rounding out our discussion, I wanted to talk to David about potential opportunities he sees in other areas, specifically other consumer-facing industries that he feels might be ripe for disruption. Um, it's been interesting. Since we've launched, there have been a lot of companies that um, uh, have kind of taken a similar approach, you know, primarily around um, designing their own brand of products and using e-commerce um, to dramatically lower uh, the price and, uh, I think in most cases, improve the, the customer experience. Um, and you know, it feels like a lot of the low-hanging fruit in uh, consumer, the consumer product space has, has already been picked off. And so, um, it, you know, I think um, what was initially um, attractive to us about the eyewear industry was that it's a massive industry that also seemed really inefficient um, and that the pricing just didn't make sense for um, uh, what people were getting for those dollars. And I think, you know, probably the, uh, the most um, obvious uh, example uh, of an industry that has the same characteristics is around healthcare, um, where just such a huge percentage of uh, this country's GDP is spent on healthcare, uh, but the pricing doesn't really make sense and it's unclear kind of how much value people are getting for um, for the dollars, um, and so yeah, it's a 
obviously uh, a bit tougher um, uh, to, to attack um, healthcare as a whole, uh, but I think there are many different verticals uh, within the healthcare space that will be um, dramatically transformed um, with new technology and, and uh, new delivery models, in particular those that um, are able to kind of cut out um, uh, historical middlemen and um, are able to offer services uh, directly to consumers. And regarding the potential of up-and-coming technology and the roles it could play in retail? Technology is one of our core competencies and um, have built a world-class tech and engineering and data science team here uh, in in New York. And um, and we're constantly exploring kind of how can we use emerging technologies, what can we do uh, to enhance the the customer experience. Um, It's the, the prime focus, but then also how do we uh, just do things more efficiently as, as a business. And um, when it comes to our retail stores, we've um, custom designed our own point of sale that we actually call the point of everything uh, because it has multiple other applications within it um, that runs on iPad minis. Um, and it's one unified system that connects um, to our, um, our uh, e-commerce uh, database. And so it's um, we have a unified view of our customers regardless of where they're shopping and um, and that allows us to provide much uh, more personalized uh, and better service to, to each and every customer um, and something that seems like every retailer should have but most don't have systems that, that talk to one another and so when you walk into a store you're anonymous and if you are their best e-commerce customer um, they often have no idea where you are, um, who you are. And, um, and uh, can't even look up uh, a lot of these customer records and you might not be able to return something in a store that you bought online and uh, just things that don't make sense from a consumer perspective. Um, And when it comes to uh, kind of new emerging technology, whether it's AR, VR, um, you know, we're constantly um, uh, exploring what makes sense um, in in terms of the um, our consumer uh, experience. Um, But we're also careful not to launch things or um, put things in front of our customers um, that we don't think solve problems. Um, and we see a lot of other companies out there um, that kind of have a technology solution that's looking for a problem. Um, and for us, um, we like to address, uh, try to figure out what's a friction point in, um, our, in our customer journeys and then are there technology solutions that can help us address those friction points. Um, one just quick example of that is that we were noticing that um, a lot of people in our stores, they were deciding between um, two or three frames that they, um, uh, they were thinking about purchasing, that they either wanted um, their husband or wife's uh, opinion, um, they weren't sure what their prescription was, they weren't sure what their uh, vision insurance benefits were, or they were just in a rush and didn't have time to check out. Um, and so. Um, initially, we had our retail advisors write down the, the name of the frames that they were looking at, and we said, well, why don't we just build an application around this? Right? We have iPad minis that are um, our point of everything, um, so we can take photos of um, the customer wearing the different frames. Um, we can um, quickly just have our retail advisor select the frames that they're, um, that they're thinking about, um, and uh, hit a button, and then that auto generates an email. Uh, the customer gets that email. From there, it's one click add to cart. Um, and so, the customer can, um, once they have made a decision, 
uh, just make it really easy for them to remember um, what they were deciding between and, and make that uh, transit transaction easy to close. My last question for David was intended to satisfy the foolish investors among us who are wondering when we might have a chance to actually buy shares in Warby Parker. We're an investing podcast. Any updates you can give uh, for when people might see you guys IPO? Um, you know, I checked today. The WP ticker symbol is available. <laughs> um, you know, we've uh, we've raised um, quite a bit of money. We've raised two hundred fifteen million dollars from uh, some great investors. We have um, a good chunk of that um, still on our balance sheet and. Um, uh, right now, have no no plans to um, to go public. Um, although it's it likely in, in the future at some point, but um, not making any immediate plans. So there you have it. Thanks again to David for sharing his story, and thanks for listening, fools. Remember that you can reach out to the entire Industry Focus team via Twitter at mfindustryfocus, or send questions to our email at industryfocus@fool.com. And don't forget to check out. Uh, podcast.fool.com for our more excellent content. People in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have full more recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening, and for one. Fool